The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, as the Mercury rises, we're talking transfers, de young moves and de wrong moves and everyone's favourite summer topic. MLS, here comes the wane again, and league enjoys new Apple turnover. Euro 22, France impresses, England any guesses, ahead of a big game for the Lionesses, and Mexico 86, Diego, Leinecker, and two lads scrapping on the terraces, all our favourite bits of another classic World Cup. It's the Tony Football Show, in association with Paddy Power. Listener, hello there. It's Monday, the 11th of July, and I'm here with Daniel Story, Adrian Clark, and Adam Hurry. Hello to you all. Hello. Hello. Mm, to quote listener, Bristol Saint, what a lineup this is, by the way. Here's a quick question from uh, Ted Neath, just to get the ball rolling. Uh, Ted Neath asks, why aren't you all on holiday? I mean, I am. I'm kind of phoning this in. Uh, Adam, you're not. You you just done the first ever Football Clichés live show, in fact, last week with... That's right. I got my business done early, holiday-wise. Okay. Which uh, it actually works the opposite way to transfers. You want to do it late, I think. Um, the holiday. But, yeah. Live show-wise, fantastic. Um, I feel like I'm duty-bound to say how humble it was, how humbling it was to be to be Why faced with so bad? many gleeful faces oh, at the right, Rio yeah. Cinema. To be honest, it's the opposite. My ego has gone through the roof. <laughs> right. right. And, and irretrievably as well. Okay, well, that, that, that's fantastic. Are you, have you got any more planned? I hope so. I hope so. I hope to hone my craft for further dates, definitely. Okay. Uh, if you're curious, by the way, if there's any uh, further Totally Football Show live events, well, yes, we've got that one that we rescheduled in Manchester. That's now on the 9th of August at The Lowry. It's a special season preview. You can get tickets at thelowry.com if you want to see Michael Cox, Duncan Alexander and Julian Laurence on the same stage, but not necessarily on the same page. Am I right? Mm. Uh, Daniel, you're not on holiday either. In fact, you've been to every single match so far of Euro 2022. Ish. I've been oh. to I've been to one game per day. I haven't sort of oh. time travelled between. One of the issues with this tournament is that, yeah, you, you cannot go to every game. Unfortunately, uh, games are at five o'clock and eight o'clock, so it isn't possible. But yes, I've been to a game every day, and I think I picked the right game every day, which is the important thing. Nice one. Let's get on to your thoughts and everyone's thoughts on Euro 2022 so far next. This is the Totally Purple Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. A little bit of the happy Netherlands supporters there ahead of uh, Saturday evenings. Big game with Sweden in Sheffield. 1-1, that one finished. Daniel, you were there, I imagine. I was indeed. Good. Okay. One of the uh, one of the standout fixtures of the opening uh, round of games, which is now complete. Wednesday, you recall, England beat Austria 1-0. Norway had a fat 4-1 victory over Northern Ireland. Thursday, Spain were 4-1 winners over the Finns, who anecdotal evidence suggests can only get better, while Germany won 4-0 against Denmark. Saturday... We were looking at ladies' draws. Late call-ups, Portugal came back from 2-0 down to tie 2-2 with the Swiss. And the big game between two of the favourites, as I mentioned, Netherlands and Sweden, ended 1-1. 1-1 as well on Sunday for Belgium and Iceland. While France-Italy was a little bit more one-sided, the French, five goals they scored against the Italians in the first half. A 5-1 final score there. 5-1, Daniel. Are the French the team that's impressed you most so far? Yeah, their performance was on a completely different level in the first half. Italy are not a bad side. They've, they've beaten Norway and Denmark this year. They drew with Spain in the build-up to the tournament. I mean, it, lo- it looked like two teams playing at a different age group level in the first half, quite frankly. France scored, started off by kind of dominating from out wide and crossing into the box. And then when, they re- when the Italians tried to cover that, they just walked through the middle. We should say that France are used to starting tournaments quickly and have this kind of reputation, probably in men's football as well as women's, for this sort of self-inflicted implosion at some point. There's already kind of big arguments about Karine Diakra's squad selection and they will probably play, or they will almost certainly play one of Netherlands and Sweden in the quarterfinals because of how that, you know, how that draws matched up, which will be a huge test. 
Um, but yeah, they, they're the most impressive side so far. Pretty much every all the big sides have impressed. Germany were brilliant. Netherlands mm. and Sweden. That that game was the highest quality I've seen. Although it was it was only a one all draw. And England are kind of neat. When people listen to this, they might have already played Norway, but they need to kind of lay down a marker. I think on Monday night because they're the only one of the big teams not to have really started well. I think mm. that fourth French goal, which you highlighted on. Oh. On social media from Grace Kiora. That was her hat-trick, I think, no? Yeah, it was. I mean, this, the kind of slalom to beat the goalkeeper. I, even on the replay, it's hard to see how she managed to do that. It was sort of Il Phenomeno Ronaldo-esque, the way she kind of just mm. dipped the body and flicked past the goalkeeper. I mean, she's a defensive midfielder for Paris Saint-Germain. And, yeah, the fingerprints of, of PSG and Lyon are, are all over this team, roughly speaking, PSG attack, attacking players and, and Leon defensive players, which is a pretty daunting combination if they get it right. Interested to hear your thoughts on on the Swedes against the Dutch. For me, having watched the game, it was Sweden that impressed me most. I thought that they looked a far better team. It was cohesive at the back. I think they were really solid. Midfield, outstanding. The way they sort of interplay, moving the ball through the thirds. Um, was it Fridolina Rolfo of, of Bayern Munich? I just thought she was magnificent. Mm. Like a kind of vintage Brian Robson dominating the engine room, do, doing a little bit of everything. Whereas the Dutch, were a little, for me, were only about the counter-attacks via Miedemar, really. So w- would you say that the Swedes would go further than the Dutch? That's, that's my read, sort of having watched that game. Last week, I picked out, I said I thought Netherlands would win that game. And I I picked them to win the tournament against England in the final, in the kind of predictions thing. But yeah, I agree. Lots of the big teams have been really good with the ball, I think, so far in this tournament. As you kind of hinted at, the Swedes were the ones who look incredibly organised off the ball, just able to kind of shut down attacks very quickly. Netherlands changed after half-time and Miedemar kind of drifted out left and got some joy in that kind of one-on-one battle. That created the goal. But yeah, the Swedes look... I mean, there are 31 games unbeaten, so they are touted as favourites for good reason. But, you know, the, the thing about this tournament is there's basically six or seven potential winners and, and obviously only eight quarterfinal spots. So from that moment onwards, it's going to get very, very tight. Mm, some glorious bits of skill from Aslani uh, for the Swedes in that game. With that name, perhaps she should be playing for the Lionesses, I, I felt. But <laughs> but yes. Uh, what, what else has stood out for you so far? Other surprises, other best bits, Daniel? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to just have a gripe for the same, sake of it, but the, the ticketing situation, I think they've got it wrong. There's an issue with them selling blocks by blocks, which is quite boring, but basically it meant that when you looked at Bramall Lane for Saturday night, it looked like there were only a few tickets in the top right-hand corner of one of the end stands. And actually there was a whole tier of the top tier at the other end that could have been used. I think that was a bad move. I also, I I cannot work out why 5 o'clock and 8 o'clock, I guess, is is for a primetime audience. I understand that, although it means that I've got anecdotal evidence of families not wanting to take kids to an 8 o'clock game, which is a real shame because it's just too late. But why on a weekend you have to continue having the games at five and eight? Surely you could go at two o'clock and five o'clock on a weekend and there would have been more kids at the games. Um, I've, you know, in Manchester on the opening night, there were quite a lot of people leaving after 70 minutes because parents wanted to get their kids home for a reasonable hour. So I think that was a mistake. That, that has stood out. Uh, the thing that really pleased me is that, uh, and has surprised me is the amount of travelling fans. There were so many Dutch and Swedish fans on Saturday. There was a huge contingent of French fans and Italians last night. Denmark brought a lot. Germany always take plenty. So I think that's the really nice thing because that's what creates an atmosphere that feels not like it's got an edge because it doesn't, but it, that it feels like it matters more when you've got those travelling supporters. Mm. All right, it'll be interesting to see how many Norwegians are there Monday at the Amex uh, mm. Monday evening. As you say, Daniel, that might have already taken place by the time people hear this. Yeah, But if not, what are your thoughts or anyone's thoughts about a game which pits England against the Norwegian side that they have eliminated from the last two World Cups, but who picked up a 2-1 victory against England the last time the two teams met? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm going down and I'm a little bit nervous on England's part. Obviously, Ada Hegerberg is back to play up front with Caroline Graham Hansen and, and the, that combination you know, all you look, read all the interviews by England players and it's like we're looking forward to stopping them we're looking forward to stopping them and it, it kind of almost feels counterintuitive to me and it, it makes me think yeah you're really thinking about that, that forward front line that's going to be difficult they'll offer much more of a threat than Austria did and England looked pretty troubled by Austria at various points so um, any, will, any win will do I think Right you, you were saying before that sort of six or seven potential winners all of them impressed 
Mm. Would you include England among that category of teams that impressed? Yes, in that I think there was a lot of nerves before that first game, from both from Serena Wiegmann in her first tournament match with England and within that team as well. Hosting is not easy on opening night. We've seen that from, you know, in opening tournaments across men's and women's games and across age groups. It, it comes with an added pressure. What we now need to see is them kind of kicking on um, because they're probably going to face one of Germany or Spain in the quarterfinals and that's going to be a massive step up from the group stage. Norway are the best team in the group other than England, so they kind of need to lay down the marker against Norway. Reassuring for me to see um, England kind of settling into a very familiar major tournament story arc, which is the central striker having this kind of existential dilemma. You know, do we continue to pick them? Are they justifying their place? But Daniel, are we are we getting into the the real next chapters? Is there a clamour for some uh, someone to replace them? Is there a kind of a younger, more exciting yep. um, option that people are going to start thinking? Well, we need them instead um, yep. because yeah, this feels like these you know, a vital ingredient of the England major tournament experience. Yeah, that's Alicia Russo of of hmm. Manchester United. Who uh, I mean, Ellen White is in a really strange place at the moment in that she always scores for England and she always scores at major tournaments and she she will start scoring. But she only scored four goals, I think, in the WSL for Manchester City last season. So she's almost become a kind of wheeled out as just like the England big game striker, which understandably, if she then doesn't score on the opening night of the Euros, kind of becomes a well, well, what is she doing then? Well, what is she doing? She's great as this kind of target presence up front she did miss a few chances and it kind of doesn't matter when everyone's sort of ducking and diving around her and Lauren Hemp and uh, Frank Kirby doing so brilliantly but yes she could do with a goal that is for sure and we'll know we've made it when there's back pages questioning Ellen White's place in this England team won't we? Exactly. <laughs> You can hear more about all the action from Euro 2022 on the Athletic Women's Football Podcast, which is coming out every day throughout the tournament. Uh, Next up, uh, under some questions, and they are doozies from you, listener. Many thanks to everyone who's written in. Here's Sam, who says, What stage of the transfer window are we currently at? I think we're just past the business done early, air quotes, stage, as clubs jet off for their overseas tours, but not yet at the air quotes, leaving it late days and weeks as sagas still drag on. What's this bit called? Uh, well, Adam. Yeah, we're in. The, I, I would say we're we're entering the kind of soft belly of the transfer window. I think he, he's 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 bookended it absolutely perfectly. The if you haven't done your business now, it is mm. no longer having done it early. But this is where various transfer sagas really start to stop grind a bit. And as soon as clubs go off on their tours, and it becomes a bit of a distraction to their preparations. That's when the whole thing becomes increasingly tedious for a lot of people. So, yeah, I'd say we're more or less the halfway mark of the narrative trajectory of the transfer window. Anything after this is a pain in the ass. For a player's perspective, if you're not wanted by your club, this is the week or two when truth outs. You've spent the summer feeling optimistic, fresh start. I'm going to get myself super fit. This is my year. And Gaffer's really nice to you. First couple of weeks of pre-season. And then they have to pick a team to go away for the trip and you're not on it and you know that you're being axed uh, with a capital A. And, it's like yeah. not being picked to get a cub camp. Exactly. Basically, that's the same thing, isn't it? That'd be gutting. <laughs> Among those not going on tour are such diverse talents as Rafinha, who hasn't travelled with Leeds to Austria, and Ronaldo, yes, who's not going on tour to Bangkok. But Rafinha does sound like he's going to Barcelona. Looks like Leeds and the Catalan club have reached an agreement for his transfer there. 50 million euros and another 10 million euros of fee? I mean, to Mm. be honest, if you don't have the 50 million and you're making it work, the 10 million is really neither here nor there, isn't it? Barcelona are perfectly prepared to say, we'll put a pin in that one. We'll we'll talk about the 10 million further down the line. We'll see what happens with that. They are a a club that seems to magic transfer spending ability, shall we say. Right. They may be able to pay for some of that by selling Frankie de Jong to Chelsea after Todd Burley and Juan Laporta met last Thursday. Crikey. Uh, it is the summer of de Jong, isn't it? I can't make head nor tail of Chelsea's transfer policy. I, I would be surprised if Todd Burley himself has a massive grasp on it. But it hit the nadir with the suggestion that they were after Ronaldo, which is the, one of the worst possible directions that new Chelsea could go in straight away. De Jong is a fascinating player. And um, during that Ajax Champions League run, he, in in the in the very recent modern history of football, 
no one has maybe sort of look at a player and go, wow, he's genuinely changing how football is played in that very brief period of time. It, it, the football he was playing looked so different to what everyone else was trying, the way he was going about his business. And I thought, OK, this is going to be a transformative player for the next chapter of modern football. It hasn't quite worked out that like that for him at Barcelona. But I would be intrigued to see him in English football. And I'm not surprised a lot of people are swarming around him as possible. He's still incredibly young. I think he's got a lot left in him to transform himself. But yeah, I didn't think Chelsea were in the equation. And um, uh, as much as I admired him during that Ajax run, I don't know quite enough about him as a midfielder to see how he would fit in at Chelsea. But I thought Manchester United would, would be a slam dunk for him. Yeah, he'd improve both teams, definitely. No question about that. I just get the feeling that Tuchel is easing N'Golo Conte out and that De Jong could be the guy to step in that sort of marauding box-to-box role. I do like him. I think he makes the players around him look better. I think he would bring the best out of Mason Mount. He'd probably shift the ball quicker to him to make things happen. He'd get the ball into the forwards that little bit sharper than they did last season. I think he'd be excellent for, for Chelsea. One thing about De Jong, and this is nothing, no slight on him as a footballer, but I, I like the way that when players move to England, because they're in the limelight all the time, there's a mystique with De Jong because he's not played in England yet and the best way I can put it is he's a he's a month younger than Donny van der Beek and yet that should be obvious they grew up in the same Ajax team they're in the same kind of crop and yet because we've seen van der Beek kind of struggling in the Premier League and going out on loan to Everton it not working out there in my head he's sort of 27 28 and De Jong is 22 because he's not played in England they're both 25 they're born within about three weeks of each other but I just think it's fascinating like how in my mind they are completely different players because I've seen one of them sort of laboring around the Premier League for a year Mm. It only takes two six out of ten performances live on Sky for it, for it all be brought back down to earth. He'll be, you know, he'll be thought of as human very quickly. I imagine mm, if he makes that move. All right, uh, Gary asks on a similar note to on a similar note to Adams. Just feels right. Jesus to Arsenal prediction. I think last time you were on the show, Adam. Uh, what is the most just feels wrong transfer done so far? You would have said Ronaldo to Chelsea, but that. So far, hasn't happened. So, has anyone got one that just feels wrong? It's Raheem Sterling to Chelsea for me. Is it? Ooh. Yeah. Controversial. Yeah. I can see how he he wants to play more regularly, and I can see why Chelsea want him. But I just look at that transfer and think, if your August goes badly, you're already potentially the scapegoat of this season at, at Chelsea. In the way, same way that Romelu Lukaku was last season, he has a euphemistically I'll say he has a history with Chelsea supporters um, given that several of them were you know were charged with racially abusing him that to my mind that makes it difficult I think he's not been popular amongst Chelsea supporters when he plays for Manchester City that's obvious because he plays for Manchester City but it just feels like he's starting from behind the start line to me at at Stamford Bridge I hope I'm wrong because I, I love Raheem Sterling but yeah that that's one that feels like you've done that because that was the only option not because it was the best one I would say Calvin Phillips to Manchester City feels a little bit wrong. (laughs) Only in the sense that that the Calvin Phillips that I saw a year ago, probably two, you know, within, you know, either a year ago or the season before that was infinitely better, in my opinion, than the Calvin Phillips we saw in the last 12 months. I don't, I'm not saying that he's a player in decline, but he didn't reach the same levels and he didn't have that same influence for Leeds United. And I don't think he's as good as the other players in his position at Manchester City. So if this transfer had happened last year, last summer, I would have been all for it. I would have said that Manchester City have done a good piece of business. I still think it's decent business in terms of the fee, relatively low, I would say, compared to to his stock. But uh, yeah, I'm just not convinced that Calvin Phillips is going to get a lot of game time and have that much impact. Mm. We'll be hearing, by the way, about his replacement at Leeds, what his prospects are like, uh, very, very shortly. Uh, my nomination for, for Garrick's question would be Christian Eriksen to Man United, just because, uh, not tactically, it just feels strange to thought of him at a Man United jersey. Adam, what's your one? Now I think about it, without Veghorst to Besiktas, feels uh, premature. Mm. I, don't, I think he's gone too early with the Turkish Super League. I thought he had two career options. Next would be to either go back to the Bundesliga 
to someone else he hadn't played for before and score 15 goals and then maybe maybe move again. But uh, or he had the kind of, which I, I quite like this kind of subgenre of English football career where he kind of parachutes gently into the championship via a couple of clubs and sort of, I don't know, becomes like the duke of a English region, marries a nice English girl, that sort of thing. <laughs> and uh, but yeah, Turkey just feels wrong. But then it, it was obviously, a you know, an emergency escape route. So fair enough. But yeah, uh, good luck to him in Istanbul. Indeed so. Indeed. Jan de Vusamudana has this question. With Spurs adding Perisic, Basuma, Richarlison and Longley to a squad with over half a season under its belt with Conte, are they the dun, 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 dark horses this season? Crikey. I think Charlie Ecosher kind of hinted at a similar... He, he, he flirted with the notion in a recent show and some of the responses on social media were, well, they were vehement. Were anyone willing to embrace that concept? I mean, they, they surely <laughs> should. They, they probably should finish third. Okay. But I don't know if... I, to to kind of over dissect the metaphor too much i'm not sure you can have dark horses when the top two are so brilliantly white horses that um it, i just don't think anyone can cope with liverpool and manchester city i think you can do really well and finish 18 points behind manchester city but hmm. to be a dark horse you have to have a, a good chance of winning the title and i'm not sure anyone does apart from those two clubs that's what they said about leicester city yeah and then and then Everyone shut that down because they were tired of little old Leicester right. pissing on their parade and it ended up with a European Super League I'm attempted I'm just break saying, blah, blah, blah. I'm, I'm just saying, oh, the, the Spurs are clearly starting from a slightly more advantage position than, than mm. Ranieri's Leicester. And, you know, crazy things do happen. I think there's as much chance of Conte having a massive blow-up and getting the, a huge hump with Tottenham Hotspur and effectively down in tools towards the end of the season, as there is them challenging for second or third place. I really do, because it all it always happens with Antonio Conte, doesn't it? It always seems to be a relatively short shelf life. And, and at times last season, it, it seemed he'd lost the will to live. And then and then he, he, he found himself again and they came, came on strong at, at the death. So, yeah, I think they look strong. They look top four material. But yeah, n- nobody's going to break the top two monopoly, and and yeah, there, there will come a moment, whether it's this season or early in the next, where where something bad happens. I think regarding Conte and Spurs. Wow, says, I might be. says former Arsenal man. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'm, maybe I've got my red red tinted specs on, but it, it it often happens, doesn't it? It didn't stick around. It does too all long. often happen. <laughs> mm. But anyway, clip that one up. No one's breaking the top two monopoly, says Adrian Clark. Adam. Yeah, um, no, maybe we, maybe the, the gap is too large, as, as the other two have implied already. But uh, there are other layers to this. All it takes is is for Tottenham to win a couple of high-profile sort of Super Sundays against the big two or, or a Chelsea and, and, you know, do a kind of statement win early in the season. I think they're playing Chelsea early on. And um, on the Conte point, I think this will be his, his one and only season to absolutely nail it with Spurs. I don't think there will be the meltdown this season. He's been indulged quite rightly, by by Daniel Levy in the transfer market. They've signed an interesting selection of players. I, I, I was like, <laughs> when sort of stock-taking a team's business in the transfer window, they people sort of tend to list every player they've signed as if to bulk it out. I don't think Fraser Forster should be included in this equation <laughs> as, as, as their good business. Correct. It's just as someone they've signed as an, as an administrative thing. But um, uh, they've bulked out their squad as he would have asked them to. And, um, and I, I really don't envisage a complete Conte catastrophe this season. Hmm. So I think they will do well. But um, I don't think we should measure Spurs' success by how close they get to Liverpool Manchester City. It's, it's about how, how well they deal with them in one-off matches. And uh, I suspect they will be hugely irritating to play against um, for large spells of this season. So that, that should be the measure that we judge up-and-coming teams, I think. Hmm. Maybe, a, maybe a cup run or two. All right, excellent. Certainly been another impressive window from Tottenham Hotspur. One other bit of uh, transfer news. Southampton have signed Joe Aribo from Rangers. Featured in all 15 games of their Europa League campaign last year and scored, of course, in the final there in Seville and could be a useful addition for uh, Saints. And, breaking news this Monday morning, looks like Wayne Rooney is set to sign up as DC United's new manager in MLS. 
TC United, his former club, of course. What's behind that? What are its prospects? And what about the other news of late in North America, like Gareth Bale and the brand new Apple TV rights deal? We'll be finding out more on all of those stories next. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Dulles Airport and a slightly bleary-eyed Wayne Rooney emerging uh, at arrivals on his way to sort out a few things and become DC United's new manager, disappointingly not making his opening remarks in Spanish. But if the deal does go through, as we believe it is set to do, uh, Wayne will be taking over a club called DC struggling at the bottom of the league, which will be comforting. It is the latest in a series of high-profile moves by MLS. He also had the arrivals of Gareth Bale and Giorgio Collini at LAFC and the signing of that massive new TV deal with Apple. We asked the Athletics' Paul Tenorio about all of this, starting off with the Rooney move. Well, certainly Wayne Rooney is regarded as a fan favourite after his time as a player at DC United, but I think the hope of the fan base is that Rooney will be able to turn around a club that you know, was once considered one of the best teams in Major League Soccer. DC United won multiple MLS Cup championships in the early days of MLS. They were among the more entertaining teams in the league. They had the best fan base in the league, in my opinion. Of course, I'm from Washington, D.C., so a bit of bias there. But certainly they were a team that set the culture of soccer fandom in the United States. And the franchise now has really failed to capitalize on that. And they've lost a lot of it. And they've, they've lost a, a lot of that history. And, you know, I think the hope will be that Wayne Rooney can prompt DC United ownership to spend more, to be a bit more aggressive in the market, that they can spend better. And really just that they can gain back what they used to have and become a club that is once again thought of as one of the better teams in Major League Soccer because it's been a long time since DC United has been that. And certainly we saw what Wayne Rooney did with Darby. He walked into what was a, a huge mess and, and I thought did a really good job. And here in DC United, he will be walking into a team that's not quite the same type of mess, but is you know going to need a lot of work. It's going to need a lot of work. The roster needs a lot of work. And some of the players who are there are going to need a lot of motivation. It's not an easy job for Wayne Rooney. And so we'll see if he's able to turn that around and manage through some of the problems at DC United, the way he was praised for, you know, managing Darby through the many, many things that they had to endure last season. All right, Paul. Well, meanwhile, last weekend, honk, honk, it was El Trafico, league leaders LAFC, hanging on for a big 3-2 win over their neighbours, LA Galaxy, in front of... Their new signings, Gareth Bale and Giorgio Collini. Now, I remember Zlatan beginning his spell with the Galaxy in a similarly high-scoring derby win a few years back. Are LAFC expecting the same kind of impact as Zlatan had from Gareth? Well, I don't think he has to. And that's the nice thing for Gareth Bale is when you look at their attacking line right now at LAFC, um, you know, Chicharrengo, the the Colombian, has 21 goals in the last year um, since joining LAFC last summer. Uh, obviously, Carlos Velo, you know, we know what he's capable of, had one of the, the greatest seasons of all time in Major League Soccer a few years ago when he won MVP. Brian Rodriguez, the lo- young Uruguayan who plays for Uruguay's national team and 
could feature at the World Cup. So they have other options. Certainly the hope is that he can come in and be, um, you know, what we know Gareth Bale is capable of when he's in form and 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 focused and healthy. Uh, we saw that when he went back to Spurs um, a year ago on loan, um, what he was able to do when he was getting regular playing time. We've seen it even with Wales uh, in the qualifiers. So, you know, I think the hope is that he can be productive, but they don't need him to be what the Galaxy needed Ibrahimovic to be, which was exactly what he was, you know, constantly scoring goals, constantly changing games. And he was the centerpiece of that team. Paul, the other big recent announcement uh, from MLS is the new TV deal, which sees uh, Apple TV signing up to show every single game in the league for the next 10 years in a deal worth $2.5 billion. That's $250 million a year about three times the existing rights value. Is it a fair deal? Yeah, um, I, I think that's more than fair. And, and it's it's both good and bad. I think, you know, it's good because the interest in Major League Soccer on kind of the, the normal television networks wasn't there, at least at, at this price point. Um, you know, MLS has grown significantly over the last 10 years, especially um, with the, the product on the field. But you know, realistically, it can't compete with the top leagues in the world. And so when you look at what Major League Soccer has done in the United States, there's a reason why they're selling out. Um, the attendance is fantastic. The the in-stadium atmosphere is great. Well, it's because it's the best footballing product that you can get in the United States. So if you want to go watch a game in your, in your city, that's the best place to go. But if you turn on the television and you want to watch the best football match that you can, well, you you wake up in the morning and you turn on the Premier League, or you can watch the Champions League or the Bundesliga or La Liga. In, in this country, you have access to every league in the world. And so Major League Soccer's television ratings have reflected that. They haven't been able to convince people to tune in and watch these games nationally. And so Apple came in over the top and made a, a significant bid that I think was a no-brainer for the league to take. However, the 10-year part of this means that for the next decade, MLS will still be well behind those European leagues and what they're making in their TV deals. And, you know, that's significant in that chase to become one of the better leagues in the world. It's not an impossible task. Again, I mean, you have some of the richest people in the world that own Major League Soccer teams. They could change the spending model at any time. They could even just change the restrictions on spending without changing how much they're spending to improve this league. Um, but I think, you know, this is a risk that MLS believes will maybe they're one or two years ahead of the viewing trends of most people switching over to streaming. This gives access to anyone in the world to tune into a major league soccer game that has Apple TV or, or downloads the app on Apple TV. And, you know, it allows everyone in the United States that, that streams games to watch their product as well. And, and the hope is that the Apple brand will help to increase their audience as well. We'll see if that comes to pass, but you know, I think this was a, a must do for, for MLS as they try to maximize their revenue streams. Mm. But the focus of this league has changed dramatically. There are a lot of talented players coming from South America, a lot of really talented young Americans that I think the European audience is learning more about once they go over to, to Europe. Players like Brendan Aronson and Tyler Adams, um, Gio Reyna, who have, well, Gio Reyna didn't play in MLS, but was developed by an MLS team. And so that's the product that they hope to show to the rest of the world. Intriguing. Well, finally for now, Paul, a quick word, if you would, on a young US talent playing over here. Uh, Tyler Adams, who's joined up at Leeds after spells at under Jesse March, previously at both RB Leipzig and a New York Red Bull. How do you see him as a Calvin Phillips replacement? Well, I think it was the right move for Tyler Adams for multiple reasons. The first being he wasn't playing consistently at Leipzig anymore. And with the World Cup in November, he needed that consistent playing time. He's an important player for the U.S. men's national team. And and certainly you want your best players playing ahead of that tournament in November. And, and he's going somewhere where he's very familiar with the system of, of play. You know, Tyler Adams' strengths, he's a world-class defensive midfielder. His defensive qualities are incredible. The, the parts he needs to improve are probably in possession, uh, advancing the ball and, and playing more uh, with the ball at his feet. Not asked to do that a ton in the Red Bull system, and I don't know how much he'll be asked to do it at Leeds, but some of the things that he does best, I think, are going to suit Leeds and suit Jesse Marsh's club. And, and he knows that, that uh, Jesse Marsh knows that Tyler Adams knows that system. 
I think what what we'll see out of Tyler Adams in the Premier League, he is an incredibly motivated player. He is very, very driven. And I think he has something to prove. And I think he's going to feel very motivated to show it on a stage like the Premier League. So I anticipate very good things from Tyler Adams at Leeds. And I think the Leeds fans will be pleased at, at what they get out of Tyler Adams, even though I do think there was a risk for Jesse Marsh to go and sign an American that he knows really well, because certainly that'll be kind of how Tyler Adams is thought of. Oh, this is just, mm. you know, the player that Jesse Marsh has known since he was 15. And that's the only reason he's here. Um, they'll both have to overcome that a little bit, but Tyler Adams has the quality to do so. Paul Tenorio. All right. Uh, exciting times at MLS. Did you enjoy Gareth Bale's hello video or hola video, I should say? Yes, I did. He is he is a man who is determined to live his best life, as the cliche goes, in every single way he can. And he also has this... He's an impossibly bad actor because he has this kind of twinkle in his eye when he's doing some some of this extreme trolling, which just makes it ten times funnier because you can tell that everyone behind the camera the other side is falling around laughing. Yeah, I've got a huge amount of time for Gareth Bale. For how many decades do you think he will continue to troll Real Madrid? <laughs> Almost certainly it will be as long as he wants. Mm. <laughs> Excellent. All right. In other North American news, Miami's second team... A hot young teenager who scored his first goal of the season, 19-year-old Romeo Beckham. Remember the name. And yes, it was a free kick. I looked at, you know, all the body language of that free kick to detect the Beckham DNA. There wasn't any, really. It was a nice, it was a nice free kick, but it, it wasn't quite the kind of emphatic swing mm. of the Beckham limbs that we were all accustomed to in the 1990s. But, yeah, it was more of a modern twist on the technique uh, but yeah good mm. luck to him uh, I'm, I'm sure he's I'm sure he's earned that move <laughs> and uh, he's got a bright future ahead of him I'm sure he, he won't be struggling either way I imagine indeed uh, meanwhile in Canada quite extraordinary scenes in the Canadian Premier League as Valor FC took on Halifax Wanderers FC Sunday a Valor FC who play out of Winnipeg as you know uh, were all set to break the deadlock and what was at that point a, a goalless draw as uh, Alessandro Riggi bore down on goal and fired on target. And then... The cross towards Riggi. Second effort and dribbles in. No! Did Accio clear that off the line himself? What in the world? I mean, the ball is, the ball is inches off the goal line and he, he shoots it away from goal. Is pretty much over the line. Does it, he forget you know, which way he's kicking? In any other circumstance, they would have been peeling for the goal. Mm. And, and um, the only explanation is that he's running in to make sure. Yeah. And he tries to toe poke it, gets it horribly wrong, and the ball sort of uh, oh. slices off in the opposite direction. The reactions of everybody involved <laughs> are an absolute masterpiece. Here, the guy who scores the goal, who, ended, and, uh, who, who attempted to score the original normal goal. Mm. Gets sort of bundled into the goal net, turns around and just cannot understand what on earth has occurred. <laughs> the nearest teammate who's sort of watching on like someone who's just seen someone get run over is has his head in his hands just going, why? Why did you do this? Um, and then the opposition are just standing there. There's no reaction whatsoever. They, they can't fathom why someone would have done that. And then mm. and, uh, obviously because it's, it's top level football, ultimately everybody turns around and blames the linesman, <laughs> which is the best thing. <laughs> It, the, the the final shot of the video reminds me of that famous picture of that Manchester night out where <laughs> it's just a snapshot in time and people are just lying. It's like a sort of real life Cold War Steve photo. That's what that last frame of that video, because no one knows what to do. And as Adam says, the inherent footballer in them means that they just blame one of the officials. Anyway, let's move on. Next up on the Totally Football Show, we're going to be talking about Jack Wilshire's new direction and pulling out another favourite World Cup scrapbook of memories. Elsewhere in the wide world of Football Friday brought poignant news with the announcement of Jack Wilshire's retirement. Sanchez struck the arm of Lescott. Magnificent! What a goal by Wilshire! Arsenal's two comeback kings! First Walcott, now Wilshire. Magnificent. Jack there, banging it home against West Brom back in the day. 
He's set now to become head coach of Arsenal's under-18s, but he's just 30. And you possibly thought he'd already retired anyway after his spells at Bolton, Bournemouth, West Ham and last season Danish side Aarhus. Uh, located, yeah, move to it. say, in the middle of our street. Thank you. Uh, Adrian, you're our go-to guy on Arsenal careers that don't go as expected. What a player Jack Wilshere was. <laughs> brutal, Jim. Absolutely brutal. But, it's, it, but yeah, look, if you, <laughs> I'll, I'll take that on the chin. Um, he, was, he was brilliant. When he came through as a kid, I just, yeah, I was taken aback by, by how good he was, how sort of fearless. I think Cesc Fabregas was the best that I've seen with my eyes in terms of teenagers breaking into the first team. Bakayo Saka's pretty close, but Jack was in that ballpark. You know, he was, I think Wenger was the perfect manager for him because Arsene Wenger was all about giving players freedom to express themselves, uh, which was great for Jack. Uh, but Jack also had that little bit of edge, didn't he, to him? He had that bit of spite and, and that, I think, adhered him to the fans because he was one of them. He was he was a little bit a bit of a lad, shall we shall we say? And it it is a real real shame that that he didn't get to fulfil his potential. Um, yeah, the he did. People forget though that he was out for the entirety of the 2011-12 campaign when he was a very very young man, and he came back from that to be to be excellent for two or three more years, and that is when. The injuries started to add up again, but but yeah, he was a brilliant talent. Just just really, really expressive. People will say that that Arsenal overplayed him. Was there a quote from from Grace Robertson saying, you know, enough times passed by that I think we can say it was unwise for Jack Wilshere to play fifty four games for club and country the season he turned nineteen. And I think in isolation it's fine to say that, but it's too too simplistic in my opinion, because everybody is different, isn't it? And I've looked at Bakayo Saka's first three seasons as a teenager, 38 games, 55 games, 52 games. Look at Wayne Rooney, who had a very, very long career. First three seasons, 42 games, 52 games, 49 games. He was fine, Wayne Rooney. Didn't really suffer with too many injuries. I think everybody is, is made a little bit little bit differently. And, and unfortunately, your body can let you down sometimes. And there was, little, there was obviously a fragility in, in, the, in his makeup that no one's to blame for that impacted him over time. And, and, and that, is, that is, is really unfortunate because he was a great talent. Yeah, I mean, it gave us some wonderful performances. And the the season that you're describing there, when he was 19, features one of, I think, the game that most people celebrate is, is his greatest against Barcelona at the Emirates, when he absolutely bosses that that Barcelona team of Xavi and Iniesta and, and Busquets. But he did, about a year ago, he did a sit-down with uh, David Ornstein, which is kind of painful to watch. He's so open and honest about the place that he's he's at and how he didn't expect to be. At, at that point you know, of his career, at that age, to be in, in that kind of situation where nobody wants him. And his son says, Daddy, why does nobody want you? It's um... Anyway, but what, what he also says in there is that he just didn't have the hunger anymore. He just didn't have the desire to go out there and prove himself to a manager that, that he belonged in, in the first team. And I guess when that goes, then... Yeah, when you know, you know. And, and for me, I had an injury where I was out for a year. And when I came back and I had to do the rehab... I just didn't have the... I did it. And then when I got there, I was like... And I was just starting out as a freelance journalist at the time. And I was just like, I don't know if I want to go training. And I don't... And and I'd never felt that way ever. Football had always come first. And maybe for Jack, it's that he gets more of a buzz out of coaching now. That he wants to Hmm. get out there, put the jacket on with JW and and, and go out and, and teach kids. Maybe that's what... There comes a point in your life where you have that change in direction. And the fact is that he's only 30 and he's embarking on a coaching career now. That gives him, it gives him five, 10 years before you would expect him to become a first team manager. He can now go and develop himself as a coach, as a manager, so that he is more than ready by the time he gets to the mid 30s, you know, 40 age group, you know, age bracket, he'll, he'll be ready. And I'll tell you what, the under 18s job, at Arsenal or at any other club, in my opinion, is the second most important coaching post at any club. 
outside the first team manager because between the ages of 16 and 18, you sink or swim as a player. You, you leave school, it's full-time training for the first time ever. You've got to have the right coach to develop you properly, to understand you as a person, to give you those life skills, to develop you tactically as well as, uh, as sort of uh, technically. You have to be a mentor, a great coach. I think it's such a key role. And yeah, I'm delighted that Arsenal have given him the chance. I really have. Um, it's, it's a bigger role, in my opinion, than the 23s, where it's a hodgepodge of a team where you get the odd first teamer. Most of your best players are out on loan. Under 18s, you are the one that's charged with the responsibility of turning a kid into a young man that's ready to play in the first team. And uh, yeah, Jack, he's a great role model for the kids at Arsenal. If he's a good coach, if he's a talented coach and he can understand people, then he'll be a, he'll be a roaring success, I'm sure. This is um, stolen from shamelessly from a, a football trivia WhatsApp group I'm part of. Um, but 22% of Jack Wilshire's career league goals won BBC goal of the season. Um, <laughs> it seems incredible that he only scored nine league goals in his yeah. entire yeah. career. Um, yeah. But he was the first player to win back-to-back goal of the season awards. Yep. The first being that that one against Norwich, and then the other one being the uh, two very the, different the goals. Cracker well. against West Brom. What's that, sorry, Adam? Two very different goals as well. So mm. Not like he had a trademark um, that he stuck to. But um, Adrian's point about the under-18s thing is interesting because I feel like it brings Wilshire's footballing existence kind of full circle. Because I know he's defined by his injuries, which is slightly unfair because I don't. Injury proneness seems to be like a weakness in the body. Was his his were kind of incidental things that just happened to him because he got stuck in, which is might be a flaw, but you know that's how it happened. But his emergence as as a player at the start of the 2010s is an interesting bookmark in modern English football because we had this kind of young midfielder with a low centre of gravity, a sense of adventure, a footballing personality, and we there was a low key desperation England wide to make it work because we, we didn't have that sort of play and we were so obsessed with, with creating our our shavvy um, because England couldn't keep the ball. And we were so obsessed with having a player who would, who would fix that problem on his own. And then after that, after it didn't work, we eventually realised it's a systemic thing. It's a philosophical, tactical thing. Teams have to keep the ball. It isn't just one player who's just going to ping it around because that's how naive we were. We just didn't understand how possession worked. It was so stupid. And I think Jack Wilshire. Um, indirectly kind of enlightened us about this. So it wasn't about creating our own chavy in a laboratory somewhere. It was about changing the whole culture of English football. He didn't do it himself, but he but he, he kind of gave us a nudge, I think. One honour Jack did receive that, that he probably doesn't know about is that that we named our cat after after Jack Wilshire. So <laughs> he's gonna be I can imagine him I can imagine him holding your cat off. <laughs> it's a good looking cat. It's it's Lion King honor. style. It hasn't been as it hasn't been as injury prone. hasn't Thankfully, hasn't cost us a lot in in vets bills down down the years. But I gave my son, who's now twenty one, my oldest son. I gave him the honour of of naming the cat um, back in the day. And, and was Jack, and Jack his, was his favourite player. player? That was a, it. Was a young Jack Wilshere. The cat's still around. Right. I think ten or eleven. I was at that parade, by the way, when he was absolutely t- just yeah. so tanked up, wasn't he? He was he was absolutely a um and that was that was fun because I think you, the, some of my colleagues at Arsenal TV were trying to interview him and it was just yeah it was it was carnage but but the fans the fans well, loved it because it, it was he kept it real didn't he there was no airs or graces with Jack well it'll be exciting to see how things work out for him with under 18s and uh, many thanks Jack Wilshire for all the memories and best wishes for the future next up we do we, we tick the on this day box and then we get to hear about age. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. In Clark's. This is the Totally Purple Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. 
The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. July the 11th, everybody. On this day in 2018, Gareth Southgate's England took an early lead against Croatia in the World Cup semi-final, but were eventually passed into exhaustion and overcome by the opposition. By contrast, July the 11th, uh, 2021, Gareth Southgate's England took an early lead against Italy in the European Championship final, but were eventually passed into exhaustion and overcome by the opposition. Uh, also, someone took a flare up the bum. That was new mm. in 2021. Hmm. 11th of July... Big day in World Cup history. You had the 66 World Cup kicking off. England against Uruguay. You had the 2010 final. Spain winning the first ever World Cup against the Netherlands. 82, that was the uh, July the 11th when Tardelli did that run after Italy beat West Ham. Oh, West Ham, <laughs> West Germany. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, West Germany. I don't know why it's funny, but it is. It is. 82 and 2010 and 66 World Worthy World Cups aren't the one we're going to be talking about today. Are they, Adrian Clark? As we ask, which is your greatest World Cup ever? It's 1986 in Mexico. Um, I was 11, and I think that that's peak World Cup obsession territory, isn't it? I think that's the right age to be absolutely mm. all over every single game. And, and for, yeah, for, for things to stick in your head you know for me now I'm sort of mid to late 40s I can still remember so much so much about it the giant spider hanging over the Azteca yeah and the, the, the circular grass cutting design which um, mm. briefly had a renaissance in the Premier League before they it was cruelly stopped I remember a couple of years ago the guy at the King Power um, referencing it yeah um, which was nice um, but yeah it was it was obviously dominated by the world's best player, and maybe it's the the only World Cup in my lifetime where where someone's absolutely dominated. I know we've had Ronaldo be outstanding at World Cup finals before, but Maradona was on a was unplayable. I remember listening to a football cliches podcast recently where he was discussing unplayable players, and it, it's mm. it's often the big target man that you can't stop in the air, but. But in Maradona's case, it was just he was he was too skillful. But yeah, so much to like, aside from the Mexican wave, which was obviously incredibly mm. annoying. It, it was trademark um, England, wasn't right. it? Um, in terms of starting terribly in a World Cup finals, so they lost to Portugal one nil, then they drew nil nil with Morocco. Um, I think Wilkins was said. Ray Wilkins become first England player ever to receive a red card in the. World yeah, Cup. and the captain, Brian Benzry Robson, was, was injured out of the tournament. So it was all down to the last game of the group. And Gary Lineker um, scored a hat-trick against Poland, 1-3-0. We, we spanked Paraguay 3-0 in the second round. And then it was the famous hand of hand of God game after that. But yeah, it was um, mm. the England kit. I remember that. Do you remember, do you remember the England kit? It, was, it had breathable holes in it, which was to do with the, the, the crazy temperatures over there. In Mexico, so that blew my mind as a kid because you're like, "What's this all about?" But um, just sticks sticks in your head. Denmark's kit, an absolute work of art, and they were the they were the the team that everyone was tipping up to to maybe go on and win the tournament. They were sensational in the group stage, and they even beat West West Germany, not West Ham. Um, and uh, and Butcher Grano then then scored four <laughs> against them, I think, in the second round. Spain thrashed them. Five one. Um, so yeah, um, some great goals. Right. Some, some... I mean, one of the greatest goals ever. Yeah. Uh, certainly at a World Cup. No, you referred to the Argentina England game as the hand of God game, but it was also uh, the game of that that goal. What was it? Only about four minutes after he he handled the ball past Peter Shilton. Absolutely extraordinary sixty yard run on uh, a, on a count. Because that was the other thing about oh, that was the other thing about this World Cup. The pitches were, and these days the pitches would be labelled as a disgrace, and 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 the grass would be way too long. It would probably double the length of of the grass these days. But but Maradona, yeah, conjured up just a a sensational run, and it, it was it was glorious. But it wasn't the only great goal. Maradona against Belgium in the semi final mm. was was just 
even better, I think, in terms of an individual performance. He, he produced another Maisie dribble and a finish. We had a Mexican player called Negrete come up with this sort of sideways scissor kick from the edge of the box, which was, was unbelievable. There was a Russian player called Rats who spanked a left footer into the top corner. Josimar, brilliant. So, so obviously Brazil in 1970 had, 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 had wowed the world with their, with their glorious football. They had a kit that was near identical for this World Cup, I think kind of as a tribute. And Josimar produced a tribute goal down the right side of the box. Very, very uh, Josinho. Skipped past a couple and then he, he produced this sort of angled drive into the top corner. It was just just incredible. So yeah, it was it was a glorious World Cup and one of those that that, that, that I didn't forget. And it and it ended with England feeling hard done by and a little bit cheated. And 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 that kind of is is trademark, isn't it? That's part you you want that that ticks the box to make it a complete World Cup for you. Lovely stuff. One of the all time great World Cup goals, or several of them by the sound of it. One of the great finals. West Germany against Argentina, 2-2 with only about five minutes left on the clock and then Maradona, of course, sets up uh, Burishaga for the uh, for the winning goal. Not one of the great themes. This was England's song. Astonishing composition that you think of the 80s this is 86 one of the greatest pop decades ever that's what they went with amazing other World Cup memories well, uh, Mexico weren't supposed to actually host this it was going to be Colombia 86 but uh, after they largely did nothing to prepare for the tournament they then pulled out for economic reasons equally Mexican wave didn't start that World Cup it was actually the, the product of the Notre Dame fighting Irish South Bend, Indiana, that's where they popularise the Mexican wave, which you detest so much. I, I'm, not, I'm not particularly anti the Mexican wave. I mean, there's a time and a place, I would say. And Scotland and Northern Ireland were at that World Cup, both eliminated in the group stage. It was also Canada's first and so far only World Cup, although they are going to be at Qatar later this year. Iraq were present too. That was their first and only World Cup, and they scored a goal, unlike Canada. Crikey, what are the great... World Cup memories have we got? Um, from that one, you just mentioned Scotland. Two reasons to remember Scotland from that World Cup. First was Gordon Strachan was was fouled in the first minute of a match against Uruguay by a guy called Jose Batista, who was sent mm. off. It was the quickest sending off in World Cup history. Pretty sure it hasn't been hasn't been eclipsed so far. Quite remarkable. I think it was a bad decision, if memory serves me right. And also Scotland committed a horrendous crime in terms of their kit. They had the white shorts. I don't know if you've seen pictures of this, guys, with the with a thick navy horizontal blue stripe across the middle of their white shorts, which which was just ugly, I have to say. Yeah. Um, mm. No one's ever done it since. And there's a reason for yeah. that, I think. It, it was yeah. poor. Punditry was great at this World Cup. There are some clips knocking around of, of Mick Shannon, now of horse racing fame, of course. He was he was let loose, couldn't pronounce Gary Lineker's name. I mean, who 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 can't pronounce <laughs> Gary Lineker? But he kept getting it wrong. Loinacre or, or, or Linacre. He, he just he just couldn't get it. Um, and he was on with Brian Clough. It was an unbelievable combination. So yeah, as as, a, as, as an impressionable. Wide-eyed eleven-year-old. I was I was quite transfixed mm. by by the pair of those two. I've got to say. Did you did you follow it more on ITV than BBC, Adrian, with their excellent theme music? <laughs> it was a great theme tune. Stolen. I don't know if it was mm. stolen by Saint and Greavesy afterwards, but it was an absolute classic. Um, used used in both. But yeah, no. I, I have to say, over the years, I've been more of a BBC than ITV person when it comes to really? to choosing yeah. the big matches. But um, yeah, back. Back at mm. that World Cup, ITV won it, I think, with the theme tune and with, and with their host of, um, of colourful pundits. All right. Adam and Daniel, you were barely alive, I imagine, in, in 86, or perhaps not even. Do you have any treasured memories to contribute before we ask Adrian about his Diego Maradona pyjama nightmare? <laughs> um, 
firmly believe, I mean, as a, as a retrospective World Cup enjoyer, mm. that Mexico 86 is the most photogenic World Cup of all time. There isn't a bad photo of Mexico 86. You can try and find one, but you would fail because um, uh, there's something about this sort of shimmering, constant daytime situation. If you're a daytime World Cup, you have to look good, and Mexico 86 nailed it. Um, it also has the best official World Cup film, narrated by Michael Caine, Music by Rick Wakeman. Wow. Doesn't sound like a great combination, but it is. It's absolutely brilliant. Absolutely incredible um, capturing of, of football action in a cinematic style. But um, of all the unforgettable images, there's one whose backstory I'm, I'm kind of desperate to know, which is the two fans having a fight during England versus Argentina, both of whom look like Benedict Cumberbatch. One of them with a towel wrapped around his head to protect him from the sun, otherwise only wearing shorts. And the other in shirt, tie and trousers, swinging a punch and missing and about to get absolutely uh, laid out by the looks of it. Fascinating image. No one's ever explained it. No one's ever come forward to identify the people. Um, but that, to me, is the biggest mystery of Mexico 82. How long have you been at The Athletic, Adam? I know. It's your, it's your job to do this. Piece. I know, the travel budget just won't extend <laughs> to going out there to the scene of the crime and finding out what the hell happened. The one, the one on the right has got a sort of Edwin van der Sar just been punched in the face look to him, hasn't he? Mm. He looks like, like a sort of Wall Street Ivy League nerd, uh, the one mm. on the right. I mean, the one that Who is he? Is, What's he doing yeah. there? Mm. Yeah. Listen, I do hope you take the time to Google this for yourself to accompany this, uh, this audio commentary of a very visual moment from <laughs> Mexico 86. Wow. Daniel, did you love 86? Do you want to hear about... Diego and his yeah, I mean, I was, I was very much taking my, my formative steps into both in, into football and, and literally uh, as a one-year-old. Um, so, yeah, I, I enjoyed One it. One other thing right. we should be grateful to Mexico 86 for is that it eliminated the stupid second phase group stage. It was um, that that was yeah, not great in, in previous World Cups, so it went straight to the knockouts. It's been that been that ever since, um, and a good ball mm. as well. I don't know what, what mm. your thoughts on, on on footballs, but for me the tango is, is will always be the best. But it was quite a nice new take on it with the Azteca tango for this tournament. Indeed, indeed. Adrian, you met Diego in his pajamas afterwards. <laughs> it is, yeah. Many years later, yeah, he, we had to wake him up in his uh, mum and dad's house in Buenos Aires, down uh, sort of a posh bit of Buenos Aires with a security guard outside. And mm. uh, yeah, we had to wake him up to to take some pictures of him signing some some memorabilia. He came down with his hair and you know he had big hair already. That hair was much, much <laughs> bigger um, when he had bedhead. And yeah, he came down in his PJs. Um, they were kind of pajamas was he wearing i think they were velvety um if memory serves me right really? i think they were quite a... i'm glad because that's exactly what i'd have guessed Adrian. so i'm glad about that yeah velvety i think they were red as well it was quite quite garish really and yeah he just swore at us refused to <laughs> refused to sign anything personal wouldn't have his picture taken with any any of us as well and yeah it was just thoroughly miserable mm. um which was good because I'd, I'd held that grudge for the hand of God for, for many, many years. So it was all, all good with me. But but what made it, you know, I know he's no longer with us and you shouldn't you, you shouldn't be too critical, but they did. So we, we, we had a lot of um, signed shirts and, and stuff that we'd, we'd left at the house and uh, we went to round it all up. And there were 200 missing. And it was like, where's, where's 200 missing? Where, where are they? And it was like... Oh. Goodness sake. So they went to the back room, got a bag out containing 200 signed Diego shirts and said, there you go, have them back. <laughs> well, it's like, we did pay for them. <laughs> so um, you can have a few, but just, just ask. It's fine. Um, so, yeah, it was, um, yeah, not the most pleasant experience, but it was, uh, it was a, a great life experience seeing Diego in his PJs being at a grump mm. bag. I remember yeah. when the great man passed away and you, you wheeled out that story as our tribute. Yeah, it's <laughs> not the most fitting tribute. There you but. go. No cats in your house called <laughs> Diego, sounds, I'm guessing. It reminds me of that uh, Peter Reid tribute to... Who, who was it now? Oh, it's Laurie Cunningham's, yeah. It's a shortly after Laurie Cunningham's death and there was a, a documentary made and they clearly asked various people for their opinions on 
lorry and it went through these very you know fitting and warm and lovely tributes and then it cuts to peter reed who says the first the first time i remember lorry is that he introduced me to garlic prawns because he <laughs> i'd never seen a prawn before and he peeled it for me <laughs> but because it's peter reed he gets away with it with this kind of cackle and twinkle mm. same for adrian i feel same for adrian yeah very true excellent well there you go that was 86 <laughs> And I want to go away and watch the official FIFA film with Rick Waitman and Michael Caine. That sounds amazing. Not sure what you got planned, everybody, but that brings us to the end of today's Totally Football Show, so you're free to get on with it, as long as you're back with us on Thursday for another edition of the show with all the latest news and some of the old stuff too. Many, many thanks today to Adam to Adrian and Daniel and our special guest producer, Steve, who will be with us again on Thursday. But above all, as ever, to you, listener, we'll see you Thursday from all of us here. It's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an athletic media company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. Paddy Power.